0: Uh, Good evening to you all, and welcome to another Ralph Miliband lecture in this year's series on the restructuring of world power, or as it may be in Robert Wade's lecture tonight, The Obstacles to the Restructuring of World Power. I'm delighted to welcome, of course, Robert Wade here this evening, who will speak on the future of global economic governance. I won't say much about Robert Wade because he's known to practically all of you here but just very briefly, of course, he is a professor in the International Department of International Development, a professor of the political economy of development, he's a New Zealander, born in New Zealand and educated in New Zealand but he received his PhD here at Sussex University. He's then worked uh, at many different institutions and organizations, let me mention the Institute for Development Studies at Sussex, where he was for a long time, the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton, the MIT Sloan School, Brown University, the US Congress's Office of Technology Assessment, and as an economist at the World Bank itself. He's been a fellow of the Institute for Advanced Studies at Princeton, the Russell Sage Foundation, the Institute for Advanced Study in Berlin, and in the summer of 2011, he will be the first do you want to pronounce
1: it? <laughs> Sanjay Alal.
0: <laughs> professor at Oxford, you're visiting professor at Oxford University and the distinction it is to note. Uh, additionally, he has received prizes, including the Prize for Advancing the Frontiers of Economic Thought in 2008 for, quote, his contributions to theoretical and practical understandings of equity and development at global and local levels. He's the author of numerous articles and books, including... Irrigation and Politics in South Korea, Village Republics, and Governing the Market, which also, by the way, won the American Political Science Association's award, the best book in political economy in the year that it was published. A distinguished record, a distinctive voice, and uh, welcome, Robert.
1: Thank you for the invitation, David, and thank you to the Miliband program. Um, I'm going to talk about the future of global economic governance, but I'm going to begin apparently far away um, with a report that appeared just a few days ago in the New York Times called Spotlight from Glenn Beck Brings a CUNY Professor Threats. This report relates that uh, the uh, conservative commentator, the very popular conservative commentator Glenn Beck, has for quite a long time now targeted Francis Fox Piven um, as somebody whom he describes as hatching a plan intentionally to collapse our economic system and as an enemy of the Constitution. This because she has been advocating that the poor and the unemployed mobilize to bring sufficient pressure on the American political system to um, generate a, uh, a guaranteed income scheme and this constitutes collapsing our economic system. And as a result of the boiling anger that he has mobilized she is now receiving death threats the second point is in the same vein that both Glenn Beck and Rush Limbaugh um, have been boosting Hayek's road to serfdom as a guide to what the Obama administration is actually trying to do. That is, programs such as the healthcare program are interpreted as a way of curtailing economic freedom of Americans so that America will be put on the slippery slope to Um, serfdom, political serfdom, and this is the quote from, a recent quote from Rush Limbaugh Frederick von Hayek brilliantly laid it out. It's all about power, it's all about control, and that's what Obama is about. I mention these two points to illustrate that at times when many, many people are in the grip of anxiety and worry about the future, then all kinds of crazy notions uh, flourish on the margins of politics and not just on the margins of politics. People look for scapegoats. They look for external enemies. The current external enemies are Muslims and China. Uh, The internal enemies are progressives, Muslims, blacks, socialists, trade unions, and so on. So that sets the context of my talk, the question being how to reform the institutions of global economic governance, and I'm focusing at the global or the regional level, um, so as, first of all, to restore finance to its rightful place, um, to its rightful place as the servant of the market economy and society rather than as the master, and secondly, um, to how to r- carry out these reforms so as to provide more economic security um, to the population at large, while also facilitating trade and foreign investment and accommodating the rising share of economic activity and um, global income in the rest of the world, in DTCs, as I will call them. DTCs, I'm going to have to be explaining my um, acronyms. Actually, it's not on this screen, but DTCs is the current word, the current phrase in places like the World Bank for developing and transitional countries. So I'm particularly concerned with global economic arrangements which will facilitate the smooth rise, the catch-up, the convergence of these countries. The good thing about the current long slump, one of the few good things, is that financial markets have lost their aura of invincibility and infallibility. Um, and we are now in having something of a debate for the first time in a long time on the reform of international financial and monetary architecture. But there is a danger. The danger is that this debate simply repeats the previous pattern, a well-established previous pattern where there is first of all a crisis, then a panic in the high command of world finance, and that panic generates calls for major architectural reforms, but then once the crisis subsides, then the calls for reform evaporate and we are left with cosmetic changes. This would be an example of Anthony Downs' issue attention cycle in politics. A good example would be what happened um, after the East Asian Russian Brazilian crisis of 97, 98 and long-term capital management crisis of 1998, when those two crises combined gave rise to real panic in the high command of world finance. For example, in September 1998, Larry Summers was at a meeting of the G7 with Ezeku Sakakibara, his Japanese counterpart, and passed him a message which read, Ezeku, the world is going to hell, we have to cooperate. And just a month later, Alan Greenspan gave a speech in which he said, I've been watching the American economy for 50 years and I've never seen it as bad as this. That's what I mean by panic. But as soon as it became clear that this crisis, the East Asian-Brazilian-Russian crisis, the long-term capital management crisis, was not actually going to blow up Western financial systems, then all this talk of a new financial architecture rapidly disappeared, and we were left with a whole lot of voluntary standards of best practice in things like bank supervision, and more, of course, more transparency, which is the standard response, more transparency. Well, so far in this current crisis, the international policy coordination um, has focused mainly on macroeconomic issues such as stimulus versus austerity, together with the harmonization of national Regulations, But there has been very little attention so far to either the regulation of cross-border capital flows or to institutional changes in the international monetary system. And the danger is that in the wake of this slump, we will be left with only tinkering. As the slump goes on, we will only tinker. And so that the international monetary system that comes out of it will be pretty much the same as our current one and possibly even generating more instability than our current one. However, I want to begin, so to speak, on a note of optimism by saying that this time, the politics of the situation are different from before. And because of this difference in politics, it might be that the political attention on these issues Including at the global and regional levels uh, remains longer than has been the case in the past, therefore giving reformers more time to mobilize attempts at reform. Um, In terms of what has changed, the the long slump, obviously, and Western publics enraged. Um, We have the DTCs, the developing countries, developing and transitional countries, that's what the T stands for, especially China, They're very worried about their accumulation of dollars, but at the same time, they also want higher reserves so as to keep themselves out of the grip of the IMF. But, on the other hand, higher reserves means that the U.S. runs higher deficits, and finally, the Obama administration, the Treasury, for example, Um, and the central bank are are getting worried about these very high US deficits. So the US might support changes at the level of the international monetary system also. Um, France uh, sees a good opportunity to lead as in its coming presidency of the G20. And finally, global economic forums like the G20, like the World Bank, the IMF, are stronger as of Uh, the last few years than they were and in particular developing and transitional countries DTCs have gained power in them uh, to the point where you can talk, people are talking about the G20ization of international organizations such as the bank and the fund. These DTCs are uh, uh, in the G20 are becoming much more present in the world in the governance of the World Bank and the IMF and organizations like the International Accounting Standards Board, the Financial Stability Board, and so on, than they were. So a change has taken place in the basic politics of international economic organizations, and this might mean that attention is continued on these issues of reform for longer than it might otherwise have been. So the question then is, in these new political conditions... Um, What should be done? I say what should be done, but it's always worth remembering Helmut Schmidt's quip. He was the former chancellor, you remember, of Germany, who said, people who have visions should see a doctor. Well, it's the function of people in universities in particular to ignore that advice and to have visions. Um, In particular, because there are plenty of examples where ideas, things, institutions, that at one moment seemed quite unacceptable, quite utopian, in a fairly short space of time, uh, came to be changed by by collective redefinition into things that were acceptable, that were politically realistic. The best example is what happened at Bretton Woods, where Keynes and Harry Dexter White, the American counterpart, they began to think about the the, uh, appropriate shape of a post-war monetary order in 1940, long before victory was assured, um, knowing that major reforms take uh, years to, uh, to design and get consensus on. Um, and so in really quite a short time, historically speaking, 1940 to 1944, um, these uh, major uh, reforms were put in place. And then another example would be the euro. Just before the Maastricht Treaty was was agreed, Jacques Delors, the President of the Commission, said that it was impossible, it was politically impossible, to get a single currency accepted. Um, And yet that idea of the single currency was written into the Maastricht Treaty, and about nine years later, eight years later, we got the euro. So those are just some um, historical examples Uh, to keep in mind in the context of having visions. So the first question then is what problems does um, the international monetary system uh, need to address? And I'm going to mention two. There are many, but I'm just going to talk about two. The first one is this point about the high frequency of financial crises since the 1980s, especially in developing countries, The standard explanation for this high frequency relative to what happened in the decades 1940s, 50s, 60s, is to do with failures of national regulation. And so the standard solution has been tighter national uh, regulation uh, and more transparency. And then the international organizations like the BIS, Bank for International Settlement, the IMF and so on, are harnessed in to help bring about those National level reforms in financial regulation, but this is really a misleading diagnosis. It has been the standard diagnosis, but it's it's also been very misleading, and I think deliberately so. Um, The point being that national regulatory systems are likely to be overwhelmed or captured when there are large volumes of short-term funds, capital flows relative to GDP in the context of free capital uh, mobility. And so what we have to look at is restraining these levels of financial flows that can go in and out of developing countries like a whiplash, as in, for example, the Asian crisis. Um, And... Uh, these uh, whiplash flows uh, have the effect, for example, of big changes in exchange rates. Um, they have the effects of making monetary policy much less effective than it would be, much less effective as a countercyclical policy, um, producing frequent crises, and the result that governments try to build up large foreign exchange reserves in order to protect themselves, to self insure, and that uh, impulse then leads to trade frictions. So, this um, problem of uh, frequent financial crises uh, driven by large volumes of short term capital flows uh, relative to GDP is one of the big problems that has to be addressed. The second one, is slow and patchy income convergence. And here I take as my foil Martin Wolf, um, a journalist I much admire but uh, not infrequently disagree with. Um, he said in two columns, actually, in the Financial Times earlier this month, um, that we are in the grip of a great convergence, meaning that developing countries or many developing countries, including big ones like China and India, are catching up with uh, the West. That's what he means by the great convergence. And he raises the question, will it continue? This is where I dissent. His answer is, why not? Why will it not continue? And he goes on to elaborate by saying that market and technological forces are spreading the stock of knowledge across the globe and no one doubts that Chinese and Indian entrepreneurs are capable of applying it. And that's basically all he says by way of answering the question will it continue. He acknowledges that there might be resource constraints if we don't manage to find technologies to maneuver around these resource constraints but He clearly thinks that we will find those technologies so that convergence will continue by 2100. Bangladesh will have the same income per head as Holland today, and so everybody will be pretty well off. Well, I could spend the whole lecture uh, explaining why I think that that argument of Wolf's needs um, substantial qualification, Um, But I'm not going to. I'm going to go right on to to propose uh, two main kinds of solutions to these two problems. The problems of high levels of financial instability and the problem of slow and patchy convergence. The first one then, the first line of solution is obviously to increase long-term capital flows to developing and transitional countries. Um, I'm not at all a dependendistas of the Latin American kind. I believe that developing countries should borrow abroad in order to supplement domestic investment. Of course, the catch is that it has to be used for supplementing domestic investment rather than domestic consumption. But they, they do need capital f- inflows to accelerate production diversification and upgrading, but the, but the flows should be stable. They should be long-term, and they should be disciplined by public purposes and not pro-cyclical. And the comparison that I'm making is with the current situation, where the volume of long-term capital flows is relatively small, and certainly the volume of long-term capital flows disciplined by public purposes, such as World Bank lending, is very small relative to the total. And so that Developing countries that want to borrow to invest in things like infrastructure, uh, long term industrial projects, are very vulnerable to pullouts of the capital that should be staying there in the long term. Um, so, this is something that um, should be dealt with. And the question is what sort of institutional innovations might help? Well, The first one I propose is an expansion of World Bank and also Regional Development Bank, RDB, um, long term lending by, for example, 10 times. And I'll just elaborate a bit on this proposal. Um, To do this would require a large capital increase in the base of the World Bank, the capital base of the World Bank and certainly the U.S. and the Part 1 countries would oppose. By Part 1 countries, I'm meaning the World Bank's members who do not borrow from the World Bank. In other words, the high-income countries are the Part 1s, the Part 2s are the borrowers. So the, you can be sure that the U.S. and the Part 1 countries would oppose such a big increase They don't actually have that much interest in seeing a big World Bank competing more than it does already with private capital suppliers and private consulting firms. Um, However, one of the striking things about this crisis is that the middle-income countries, the Brazils, the Chinas, um, the Indias and and others of that same category, have come out in strong support of the World Bank, even though they are the countries that could most e- easily walk away from the bank and borrow under their own names in private capital markets. They, the middle income countries, have come out strongly uh, in support of the World Bank, and they might support such a big increase. Now, This brings me to the distinction within the World Bank of its two lending arms. One of the lending arms is called the IBRD, this one, International Bank for Reconstruction and Development. And IBRD lending is lending to middle income countries on almost commercial terms. But IDA lending uh, is lending to low income countries on very concessional terms. Now, at the moment, both these lending arms of the World Bank are governed by the same set of executive directors who are dominated by part one countries, that is the non-borrowing countries. Um, and this is a very important point in terms of the, how the bank as a whole is governed because um, the, uh, the US Congress, for example, can put conditions on its release of money for this part of the World Bank, the IDA part, which is financed by grants from the rich countries, can put conditions on its money for IDA, conditions which then apply equally to World Bank lending from the IBRD, from the nearly commercial arm of the World Bank. That's a very important instrument of leverage because the IBRD is financed by selling bonds and financed by the repayments of previous uh, IBRD loans. In other words, it's financed one by the sale of bonds and two repayments from the middle income countries that used to borrow from, uh, that earlier borrowed from the IBRD. So one possibility then, if these countries would support is to simply split the governance of these two lending arms so that the middle income countries, the mix, would govern the IBRD and the donors, the ones paying into IDA, they would govern IDA. Now this is definitely an idea that's not being discussed. Um, In particular, the Part 1 countries, for obvious reasons, do not like this idea at all. In fact, in the recent uh, 2010 strategy for the World Bank, the new strategy titled New New World Bank Group, um, there wasn't any hint of the bank going up to a size of anything like that order of lending, and nor was there any hint of governance changes of the kind that I'm talking about. But I think privately, some of the part two countries, some of the middle income countries, are quite interested in this um, idea. So that's one possibility. Another way to increase long-term capital flows to developing countries would be to establish a multilateral, closed-end investment fund or funds. For example, it could be under the World Bank, um, in order to buy private and public securities in developing countries. Um, So buy securities of companies, for example, in developing countries. But the fact that it's closed-end means that this is a way of providing stable flows of foreign portfolio investment to developing countries. The point about the closed-end fund is that um, it would issue shares, and its shares would trade on stock markets, but the investors in the shares could not simply sell the underlying securities. They could um, not... uh, Pull their money out as they could from a an open end fund, so this capital in the form of portfolio foreign portfolio investment is much more stable than it would be if it came in in an open end fund the fund 's member governments uh, would guarantee its capital, and this of course has the added advantage that it reduces the need for national capital controls. Um, This idea also is is not being discussed um, to the best of my knowledge. It's not an idea that's very popular, but as I keep saying, um, things are in flux, and ideas that uh, today seem unacceptable or utopian may become acceptable um, in the not-distant future. However, now I want to go on to something more basic, and that is to do with a fundamental reform of the international monetary system, the system, that is, that we've had in place basically since the end of the Second World War, the system that we know of as the dollar standard in which a national currency, the currency of the United States, becomes the only or the dominant um, international currency. My argument proceeds from the proposition that this dollar standard Um, is itself a silent source of financial instability and slow convergence that changes in this um, monetary system could help to address these two basic problems that I talked about earlier. The central problem with the dollar standard is that it makes the supply of international liquidity, such as, for example, um, to meet the demands of countries for foreign exchange reserves... They want to hold dollars because the dollar is the main international currency. The supply of this international liquidity depends on the U.S. running current account deficits. Um, And this gives rise to problems that are well known. Robert Triffin talked about them in the 1960s, but they basically haven't been addressed. And they are a constant source of instability. potential instability in the world economy. Over the past decade, these U.S. deficits that are necessary to supply a growing world economy economy with liquidity have got larger and larger, not just with China, which is what the newspapers are full of, but also with the EU, also with e, uh, oil exporters. But just to give you an indication of the size of these deficits, in 2008, the U.S. deficit was roughly the size of India's GDP, So we're talking very, very large numbers here. And the problem is that the U.S. in this system, because its currency is the international currency, is not under the same pressure as other debtors to cut its deficits. And so that the payments imbalances continue as long as the surplus countries like China and the EU go on uh, being willing to accumulate U.S in their foreign exchange reserves. What are the damaging effects? One of the, this, the most damaging, the central damaging effect, is that this system <coughs> contains no mechanism which allows for smooth rebalancing between creditor and debtor countries. Um, in particular, flexible exchange rates don't work, at least when they're combined with free capital, um, flows, um, and so many developing countries experience huge exchange rate changes, like 20%, 200% uh, exchange rate changes per year, much greater than the ACs, the advanced countries. And these, this volatility in their exchange rates has very far-reaching effects on resource allocation within them, on business failures, on income distribution, and so on. The particular problem is that these exchange rate changes are driven not by trade flows, which would make them relatively stable, but rather by speculative capital flows. And uh, I like to say that exchange exchange markets are functioning like drunken air traffic controllers directing planes to the wrong airports, directing capital to the wrong places. A spectacular case in point that I've studied at some length is Iceland, through the 2000s, Iceland was running gigantic current account deficits, 15% of GDP, 20%, more than 20% of GDP, and at the same time, the Krona, Iceland's exchange rate, was appreciating, not depreciating, as it should, in order to bring down the deficit. It was appreciating. Why? Because Mrs. Watanabe and um, Mr. Schmidt in Switzerland um, uh Borrowed in their own currencies at very low interest rates and bought Icelandic assets. Therefore, this flow of capital into Iceland to get 15% rate of interest appreciated the currency, just making the whole imbalance situation worse. But Iceland was by no means an isolated case. The same kind of thing was happening in many other countries as well. A third problem with this international monetary system, the dollar standard, is that it throws the burden of rebalancing, the burden of adjustment, onto the non-key currency debtor countries. It throws it onto the debtor countries with the exception of the US for the reasons that I gave. Um, And so the debtor countries then, uh, to reduce their deficits, have to either cut their imports which then has recessionary effects, sending a contractionary wave through the world economy and in the end hurting the creditors as well um, as we're seeing being played out now in the eurozone between Germany and the southern periphery. Uh, Or secondly, they lower their deficits by restructuring the economy towards exports and away from domestic demand. And that means, for example, cutting wages. Um, And This uh, problem of the adjustment falling on the debtor countries particularly impacts developing and transitional countries because they commonly run deficits. And indeed, they should run current account deficits as they try to build up their productive capacity. And so, in this particular case of the developing countries, their adjustment to deficits means that they put downward pressure on wages, they have slower growth, and they have slower catch-up convergence, slower convergence um, to the West. And finally, the last damaging effect I'll mention is simply that this system gives the U.S. um, Treasury, the U.S. Central Bank, a great deal of influence in the rest of the world, but it has used this influence historically in a careless or heedless kind of way, um, as in the comment by a senior official, the dollar is our currency and your problem, or Nixon's famous phrase, I don't give an expletive deleted about the lira. (laughs) Um, And uh, I had, uh, in uh, 1989, 90, I taught at Princeton in the Woodrow Wilson School, and so was uh, Paul Volcker teaching at the same time. We had lunch a number of times uh, in the course of one of which I asked him um, what sort of analysis did the Fed do um, about the impact on the rest of the world, especially Latin America, uh, of the great interest rate hike that you were planning in 1979, the Volcker interest rate shock as it is known which was uh, put in place, this huge increase in interest rates was put in place because of US inflation. So I asked him what uh, studies of the impact of this hike on the rest of the world did the Fed make. Volcker is a man of few words and he just said, none. I was shocked and I said, why not? And he said, we didn't have the capacity. We in the Fed didn't have the capacity to do the analysis. Well, of course, you know what happened. Latin America through the 1970s had gorged itself on debt from American banks. And then these uh, interest rate hikes, American banks at floating interest rates. So when the US interest rates went up, the uh, Latin American countries, one after another, tumbled into deep crisis and remained in crisis for one or maybe even two decades. So the impacts were huge, but the Fed didn't undertake an analysis of what they might be. So this is another reason for moving away from this dollar standard. Um, And in response to the standard and its instabilities, what is happening is that developing countries are trying to build up big foreign exchange reserves in order to self-protect themselves. Um, And their efforts to build up these large reserves just add to global financial fragility, in particular because there's a risk of a sudden stop in their purchases of dollars to finance the U.S. deficits. Um, And uh, Larry Summers put it well, put the essence of the mechanism the essence of the international monetary system well just a few years ago, when he said that equilibrium was being maintained not as a result of market forces, but as a result of a balance of financial terror. I was reminded when I read this of Warren Buffett's remark about um, OTC derivatives being financial weapons of mass destruction. And uh, as I mentioned, China is very worried about this system, too, because it's holding so many dollars. It's the largest holder of U.S. uh, dollars, um, and it's worried that uh, there may be a crash in the dollar which would devalue its holdings and is taking various steps to try and reduce its holdings in dollars. So... So far, most of the discussion about how to reform this international monetary system, the IMS, has taken the form of um, (laughs) Special Drawing Rights, SDRs, and Special Drawing Rights are getting quite a lot of attention. For example, the G20 um, in 2009 endorsed a new allocation of Special Drawing Rights to 10 times previous stock, Now, that may sound impressive, but this previous stock was practically nothing, and ten times nothing remains nothing. Um, I'm not actually going to talk about these various proposals for um, strengthening special drawing rights. Um, For one thing, I hate the phrase special drawing rights. Everybody's uh, eyes glaze over when you hear the phrase special drawing rights, and for another... There's no doubt that whatever is being considered would bring only quite limited improvements. If you want to talk about special drawing rights um, later, then uh, then we can certainly do to uh, do so. What I want to talk about is a big structural change, and that is the establishment of an international clearing agency, which I call ICA. Um, It's a conceptually simple solution to the fatal flaw of the post-1945 international monetary system. Namely, as I said before, that the supply of international liquidity depends upon the U.S. running deficits and the burden of adjustment to imbalances falls not on the surplus countries but on other deficit countries, that is other than the U.S., which have to contract demand or borrow abroad. Now, I want to just say something uh, about the history of this before I explain its mechanics. Um, In this period, 1940 to 1944, Keynes spent a lot of time devising not one but actually several models of how an international clearing agency might be designed, and he called this proposal, this innovation, a measure of financial disarmament. That's how important he thought it was. To overcome this basic problem, that with the dollar standard, the supply of liquidity depends on the U.S. running deficits. At the Bretton Woods negotiations, the U.S., being the biggest creditor country, vetoed uh, Keynes's idea, um, and uh, went f- forward. The world went forward with an arrangement that we still have, where the U.S. was the dominant, the dollar was the dominant currency, and. There are no penalties on creditor countries to reduce their surpluses. The penalties fall, as I said before, on the debtor countries. But um, there have been uh, real-world examples of this mechanism in action, such as the European Payments Union, which was established under the Marshall Plan, which operated from the late 40s to the mid-50s, Um, Albert Hirschman, many of you know the name, one of the most celebrated development economists, really began his career working on the European Payments Union, and he and other people who worked on it considered that it was about the most successful institutional innovation under the Marshall Plan. So this, uh, bearing in mind Mark Twain's dictum that history does not repeat itself, but it does rhyme, this might be an idea whose time has come. Um, It can be done at various scales. It could be done as a global um, uh, clearing agency, could be done at regional levels, could be done at a bilateral level. Keynes actually initially proposed a bilateral clearing agency for US-UK transactions, and then he generalized it to a much larger number of countries. But um, a proposal has been... Uh, put forward for a US-China, whoops, a US-China um, bilateral clearing mechanism um, to bring more balance into these payments instead of this uh, constant focus upon the two things, as though these are the only two ways to bring balance. One, the exchange rate change, the revaluation of the UN, or behavior change, namely Increased Chinese consumption and increased American saving, um, this is an institutional um, arrangement that might bring balance uh, instead of these two mechanisms. So let me talk about the core ideas um, the The basic point to bear in mind is that such a clearing mechanism already exists at the national level for clearing interbank payments within nations and the whole idea of this international clearing agency just extends principles that are already familiar at the national level to the international level to transactions between central banks. Um, It does have some rather rigorous um, uh, requirements which would make it distinctly unpopular with private financial markets. Such as, for example, it requires that funds denominated in foreign currencies be passed to central banks when they enter national markets and then central banks pass them up to the International Clearing Agency for the adjustment between the central banks inside itself. So the mechanism enables countries or agents within countries to engage in international trade and investment in their own currency without having first to buy hard currency, without having to buy foreign exchange on the markets. That's a very important advantage. The members of the ICA are central banks, and the ICA settles um, balances between central banks, between France and Britain, Britain and the U.S., for example, U.S. and China, using... A supranational monetary unit, this unit's value would be linked to a weighted basket of member country currencies. Keynes called this unit um, Bancor. It's a horrible word, although it's better than special drawing rights. I'm sure we could get a better name for the supranational monetary unit. But in any case, the basic structure is that the ICA holds the debt securities of member governments as its assets, such as, for example, it holds central bank bonds as its assets, and it holds um, member governments' international reserves as its liabilities, and both are denominated in Bancor. Um, And then with these assets and liabilities, the ICA clears payments between countries inside itself. Um, between one one central bank account and another central bank account without the payment having to go through an open foreign exchange market. So the mechanics can be illustrated with a simple example. I'm an exporter. I export to you. And you pay me a cheque, which is denominated in your currency, So, I take your cheque in your currency to my commercial bank. My bank credits my account but in my currency using the exchange rate between your currency and Bancor and Bancor and my currency to calculate the value of the cheque. So, I am credited with the value of your cheque in your currency but in my currency and so I'm paid off and I'm happy. Then my commercial bank gives the cheque to the central bank the central bank deposits the cheque in my bank's account with it, in my national currency, so my bank is paid off. Then my central bank gives the cheque up to the ICA, and the ICA deposits the cheque in my central bank's account with the ICA in my currency. Um, or, sorry, in no, not in my currency, in Bancor, because all the transactions within ICA are in Bancor. And then on the other side of the ledger, the ICA deducts the value of your cheque from its account um, at, of your central bank in Bangkok, and gives the cheque to your central bank, which then deducts um, its, the, your commercial bank's account with your central bank. Uh, it d- deducts it in your currency, and then your central bank deducts... Um, the value of your cheque from your account at it. So the transaction is complete. I buy your... Um, sorry, you buy my export without us having to enter into the market for foreign exchange. We're, we're going
0: to run a test on this on all of you before you leave this. <laughs> if you can't repeat this before you leave the theatre, you're not leaving tonight.
1: So this raises the question of how are the exchange rates set Well, the exchange rates are set in relation to movements of reserves at the ICA. So countries running um, surplus reserves face an appreciation of their exchange rate. Exchange rates might be adjusted once a month, for example. And countries running deficits face a, a depreciation of their exchange rate These exchange rate changes then reflect changes in relative costs of production and of demand for goods and services, rather than speculation on future movements of the exchange rates by private actors. Um, And in addition to this adjustment of exchange rates, which would in themselves tend to reduce imbalances, uh, Keynes built in another mechanism, which is this one, namely that (coughs) surplus countries pay interest. On their surpluses. There's a cost to keeping surpluses. They pay interest to the ICA, and also deficit countries pay interest on their deficits, so that there is an incentive on both sides, and that was a critical point on both sides, on the surplus country side and on the deficit country side, to reduce imbalances by having the surplus countries, and this is really the point by having the surplus countries. Use their surpluses, use their accumulated purchasing power to buy goods, to buy goods from the deficit countries rather than simply to finance the deficits, as has been the case um, over the past um, 30 years or so, with countries running surpluses, lending back their surpluses to the United States. So this is a way by which, uh, just let me repeat, surpluses countries have an incentive to use their surpluses to buy goods from deficit countries. That's the way to avoid a contractionary wave through the world economy and to keep these things in balance. Which all raises the question, how would this thing be governed? Uh, Of course, the governance would be rather tricky because this organization would hold the wealth of nations in its hands Um, especially through its decisions on reserves and on exchange rates. Well, I'm not going to get into how it might be governed, except to say that its voting mechanism would clearly weigh both population and GDP. So you would have some mechanism of a double uh, majority uh, uh, in order to make decisions, uh, a double majority, a majority on population and a majority of GDP. This wouldn't necessarily um, eliminate private markets except for the fact that um, this is the key condition, that all funds denominated in foreign currencies, when they enter national markets, have to enter national markets through central banks rather than through private transactions. But there could still be offshore transactions, though I would expect that they would uh, atrophy as this system Uh, develops. So let me just recap quickly then. Um, We've had this series of financial crises which have regularly prompted talk of new financial architecture which then evaporates as soon as the crisis subsides. Um, But I've suggested that things might be different this time because um, of changes in political conditions which mean that there will be longer lasting political attention to these kind of problems so that advocates of reform have longer than before to press their case. Um, And I remind you again that Keynes and the others started planning for the post-war monetary order in 1940 long before they were sure of victory. These things do take a long time. Um, I've identified two major problems glo- at the global level, financial instability and slow and patchy convergence. I've suggested one line of solution is institutional changes to, to greatly increase the supply of long-term capital, both bank lending and also portfolio investment to developing countries in particular. Um, And the second line of solution is the International Clearing Agency, um, which involves abolishing the key currency regime um, and enabling countries to engage in international trade and investment in their own currencies. Um, And one key feature of this International Clearing Agency is that it puts symmetrical pressure on the surplus countries as well as on the deficit countries to reduce their imbalances. As I've said, this could be done at the global level, but it could also be done on much smaller scales, such as regional or even bilaterally. If we put in place these two lines, uh, institutions corresponding with these two lines of solution, then I think Wolf's confidence about continuing convergence would be more justified. However, my my prediction is that none, nothing much will happen under these headings and that we will kind of drift uh, as, as the dollar-only era comes to an end, as I think it is coming to an end, we will kind of drift into a multi-currency system with some small increase in SDRs, and I think that the outlook for this is um, basically more of the same, more... Uh, financial crises coming down the line. Now, um, if there was time, but there's not, we could go on to talk about, but I'm happy to, if you want to, talk about reforms of this G20, um, on which I have quite a lot to say. Um, And also, I wanted to just draw your attention to an interesting change that is beginning in the World Bank about the nature of development. Under the influence of the Chinese vice president for economics, the first ever non-G7 chief economist of the World Bank, Justin Lin, um, some parts of the bank are beginning to reconceptualize development um, away from sort of static notions of comparative advantage and poverty reduction towards um, a process of production diversification and upgrading This is, in effect, talking about industrial policy, but industrial policy is a forbidden term. It's completely toxic. And so they are talking about these ideas under the Orwellian phrase, um, competitiveness partnerships initiatives. Um, Okay, so we'll end it there. I'd be happy to take your questions.
0: So, watch out for the stewards as you go out and make sure you can repeat the formula. We'll take questions in clusters of five. Uh, So, if if anyone wants to leave now, that's a good time before we settle down to questions. And then I'd be grateful if you could stay till the end so there's not so much movement uh, going on whilst we're having questions and responses. Um, Hands, four questions. Yes. Uh, Can we have a mic at the front here? Perhaps everyone could just say very briefly their name and the question. We'll take five, Robert, okay?
1: Yeah.
2: Hello, I'm Anna Wishart from the Centre for Global Governance. Um, I just had a quick question about... Sorry, could you
1: just say your name? A bit louder. Uh,
0: Anna
2: Wishart. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah.
2: Um, I had a question about the model that you propose about the creditor countries and the debtor countries. In terms of the creditor countries... um, Can you hear,
0: Robert? I think you have to hold the mic a bit closer, I'm sorry. sorry. I
2: was wondering if you could say something about the creditor countries buying things from the debtor countries, and whether um, you think that, at the moment, due to imperfect market conditions, sometimes heavily indebted countries are unable, for political reasons, for example, to produce exports, whether you think, in the system that you're proposing, the economic incentives would become so strong that they're... Those issues would help to overcome issues of political corruption, institutional corruption that might affect a country's ability to provide exports to, for the creditor countries to buy. Sorry, it's a very long winded question.
0: Uh, are you happy with that, Robert? Sort you got of. It? Sort of. All right, well, we can always ask you. Yes, the woman, back, halfway. Yeah. This way. Yeah, great. Pass the mic along.
2: Hi, uh, my name is Emily Blewett, um, and I had a question. Um, going against uh, Martin Wolf's theory of global, uh, global convergence, perhaps you could say something on how you think um, regional developments have, um, have fared since the, since the crisis, or since, um, uh, yeah, I mean, as opposed to kind of more of a global
0: convergence. Thank you. Yeah, gentlemen, back. And then we'll go up for two questions. Hi. My name is Harry Gibson. Um, It's kind of a clarifying question as to whether you think that the World Bank in the long term and
3: the people that work at the World Bank are better allocators of capital than the free market uh, and indeed international investors. And the second point is on the closed-end investment fund. Who do you see as the investors? And do do you think there would be much take-up to a fund essentially dictated by the World Bank rather than international investment groups?
1: Uh, sorry, I didn't actually catch the second part of that.
3: So the second part was to do with the closed-end investment funds. Who do you think would be investing? And would there be, you know, if you try to take up all of this or the
0: government investing? And two questions at the top.
3: Thanks, uh, Debbie Palmer. I'd be grateful to hear a little bit more about um, your views on the G20, particularly um, following the, um, the wobbles after Toronto last year.
1: And... Back. Sorry, particularly after the what? The wobbles following the meeting in Toronto last year. Meaning by the wobbles?
3: The, um, the, I've read a lot of um, <coughs> commentaries uh, suggesting that people are concerned that the G20 won't stack up in the way that people had hoped. Um, there was a number of pieces by Javier Solana looking at how um, it may not actually be able to deliver on everybody's expectations.
0: Woman at the back.
4: Hello. Um, I'd just be really interested to know um, a bit about of your opinion with your models in regards to sustainable development and the use of GDP, and also the use of purchasing goods, and whether we should be looking towards purchasing ecosystem services and other things of these developing countries, and sort of your opinion about how that fits into your models.
1: Actually, I'm sorry, I really didn't understand the that. The questions right up. on the top. Yeah. Um, Being, yeah
4: the. Sorry, the yeah. um, question of GDP and how we should be using GDP to measure development in general um, is something that I'm very interested in especially in regards to um, valuing things more than just the obviously goods productions in countries and how your model would fit into um, a more sustainable international economic system. So um, looking less at looking less at um, purchasing of of actual goods in physical terms and how you're can you explain
0: (laughs) (laughs) that? Another way to say it might be aren't you just another isn't this just another economistic view of the world since GDP is your yardstick of development in general and how do you embed other measures of development particularly concerned with sustainability into your matrix of value? Thank you very much. Perfect. And whilst we're at it, I have one question for you too, Robert, uh, which is this. If I want to take out a bank loan, I don't want to just go to one bank. Uh, And if I want to take out a mortgage, I wouldn't want to just go to one mortgage provider. I'd want to have a competitive market out there so I can choose the product that best suits me. I understand entirely the arguments for the reform of the World Bank, and you make them very elegantly and cogently, and uh, I certainly agree with them. But isn't the problem partly is that the World Bank itself belongs to an old order now in decline, which is an old order which was tied to the sort of Western hegemony. And isn't the problem less now to do with the reform of the World Bank and more towards accepting a plurality of alternatives to the World Bank? I mean, that China we now know provides more development lending than the World Bank itself. Might that not be a good thing rather than a bad thing? In other words, shouldn't the model be towards a, a plural set of sources of finance for development, which may come from different regions of the world, rather than just locking all that lending power and investment authority into a reformed World Bank? Just a, just a thought. Um, that's enough for now. <laughs>
1: well, on the, on the first question about... Um, <clears throat> debtor countries' ability to um, respond. Um, I mean, you're right. Uh, many countries will face all kinds of difficulties, especially in um, responding to for example uh, I- increased demand for manufactured goods. I mean, one of the problems is that the the biggest surplus country is China. China um, is in the market not for manufactured goods on the whole at least not for manufactured goods from other developing countries um, but for for commodities and we are seeing a slow erosion of um, manufacturing capability including export capability in many developing countries and their movement towards um, more specialization in commodities um, So that that is a real problem, and that that has to be uh, recognized and efforts made to deal with it, both nationally and internationally. But still, I think that the International Clearing Agency uh, mechanism does um, provide um, a way of increasing demand for... Uh, export goods from debtor countries and therefore including from developing countries and that 's a kind of a necessary condition for the supply response so um, I take your point up to a point, but not much further um, include uh, regional developments uh, it kind of comes uh, a little towards david 's question um, yes there there are um, some interesting, quite recent uh, regional developments. The Chiang Mai Initiative, for example, involving swap arrangements between central banks in the Asian area, which was largely um, symbolic. It was on too small a scale to be really meaningful until this current crisis. That Chiang Mai Initiative has been beefed up there are uh, various efforts underway in Latin America to provide uh, stronger regional um, financial uh, mechanisms involving cooperation between Latin American states. So there are certainly interesting developments happening at the regional level. And I think that in the longer term, one can look forward to organisations like the IMF um, having... A role not so much dealing directly IMF to particular countries, but IMF having a coordinating role with respect to regional IMFs, if you like, um, and and so it would that would tend to strengthen the regional level of um, global organisation, but in a way that where there is a mechanism for coordinating um, between the regional arrangements, that's a possible kind of scenario um, i don 't actually know much about what 's happening um, at the regional level, but I do think that this is a, v- a very important line of development um, let 's see <clears throat> when i when i um, I argue for a a large increase in long-term lending from a public organization like the World Bank or from regional development banks, um, I have in mind advantages of subjecting this long-term lending to some uh, accountability mechanism, some uh, degree of public purpose, and um, I think we have seen uh, that uh, private, strictly private investment, particularly if it's structured in a way which means that it's essentially short term, can uh, pose real big dangers to um, developing countries. So um, I'm not saying that these are mutually exclusive. I'm not saying that there should be no more private capital flows. But um, for the reasons that I gave, in terms of reducing the vulnerability of developing countries which are wanting to borrow long-term but are not finding uh, enough supply of long-term lending and therefore borrowing short-term to finance long-term projects like infrastructure projects, in in terms of reducing their vulnerability to the withdrawal of capital flows, that's the rationale for um, a big increase in long-term lending from public Um, institutions. In terms of the G20 um, and the criticisms, especially since Toronto that it has not been delivering um, I think that there is a a really fundamental problem with the G20, though if you talk to members of the G20, you don't get much sense of this fundamental problem. To get a sense of the fundamental problem, you have to talk to uh, people from the 172 states who are not members of the G20 and who, as it's currently constituted, will never be members of the G20, such as, for example, the Nordics, but plenty, plenty of others as well. And the problem is that they see, the the states that are permanently excluded, see the G20 as a self-appointed group. In fact, the 19 countries who are members, together with the presidency of the EU, um, were selected in a transatlantic telephone call, or rather a series of calls, between Timothy Geithner at the US Treasury. Uh, in 1999, and his counterpart in the German finance ministry, Kajo Kochfaser, who sort of went down the list of countries, putting ticks by some and crosses by others. So South Africa in, Nigeria, Egypt out, um, Spain out, uh, Argentina in, because uh, Argentina. Um, was then in financial crisis and the finance minister was a close friend of Larry Summers who was the treasury secretary so Argentina had to be in but not Colombia so there was a largely uh, there was a large arbitrary element um, in the selection of countries and if you ask how the G20 or uh, to, to um, change the terminology how a global economic council might be selected then there's a question of what sort of explicit criteria explicit criteria might be used for example one possible criterion was that all countries which in population uh, account for 3% or more of world population or in gdp account for 3% or more of world gdp all such countries should automatically be members and then other countries, for example, might be represented through the representation of regional organisations such as the African Union, such as ASEAN, such as other regional bodies which might have um, seats on such a global economic council. Um, I'm not uh, particularly um, wedded to either of uh, these ideas, but um, What I do think is the case is that the G20 is not a kind of long-term viable solution. We are going to have to uh, move to um, some other body carrying out global economic steering functions. Um, And again, David, I don't think I'll answer your question directly because I've sort of already um, answered it. What I'm what I'm saying is about a a larger role for the World Bank. Um, I mean, this, even if it was ten times um, its present volume of lending, it would not make that much difference to um, uh, aid flows coming from uh, from other countries. Um, Then there need not be a kind of um, mutual exclusiveness here. But I, I do, just rep- to repeat one point, I do think that it's a desirable thing that African countries, for example, should have the option of going to a public organisation such as the World Bank and not simply be dependent on either private capital flows or, p- or particular national donors such as China. Okay.
0: Thank you. So we have the time for at least another round. Um, yes. In front. No, you, Ava. Ava.
4: Um, thanks, Robert. Um, Ava Marienag, Executive Editor, Global Policy. It's um, a good journal. <laughs> yeah? You've written excellent articles for us. Thank you. Um, just a quick question. What kind of impact do you think your two-pronged uh, approach would have on growth rates, especially in DTCs?
1: Can I ask one then? Sure, Robert. uh, I just wonder. You gave a a good example for uh, the clearing agency, but it was for exports and imports. I wonder how this would uh, deal with financial services and financial contracts, stuff like derivatives, etc. Thanks.
0: Thank you. Any more questions? There were some before. Where are your hands? Yes. Woman in the front here. We'll just take the question up there, and then the gentleman here.
2: Uh, just a little um, question on your opinion on how you felt about the structural adjustment programmes during the 70s, and how you felt about the structural adjustment programmes during the 70s.
3: Okay, let's clip. Yes. Hi, uh, my name is Ludovic. Uh, two two questions. First question, quite quite a quick one, um, more of a beginner type question. Um, Under what situation would a country prefer to go to, say, uh, the open market or, say, a regional bank rather than the World Bank? Um, I'm having difficulty just clearing, um, defining under which situation each country would prefer whichever. And um, secondly, uh, relating to your first solution, you um you advocate the the um the desirability of of having more long term foreign direct investment uh, I'm just thinking in practice how would that actually occur um if you if you uh introduce more inflexibility um, uh, while it may be good for the uh for whatever reasons uh people supplying the capital may well prefer to go to the next country along who has less um Sorry, has more flexible um, opportunities. So I, I, I would imagine you need a sort of clubbing, a clubbing together of of different countries uh, having a kind of standard long term solution.
1: I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Thanks.
0: And finally, fifth question. Ian Goff, LSE.
1: Um, clearly, the ICA proposal would. Um, would essentially sideline a lot of the foreign exchange markets so there would be private opposition to this plan as well as from the US and other big players. So it comes down to the politics and the political economy. And, um, I mean, your basic answer is that the present system is dying and uh, so there's going to be continuing crisis. I, I personally accept that. But could you speculate a bit about um, how that might come about? I mean, might it come about for a breakdown in the US-China relationships on balances or some other way?
0: Thank you. Anyone with a very urgent final question? Really urgent? Yeah, really urgent.
3: Okay, That will be our last question. Yes, mine's on the question of consensus versus re- regulations. And who do you think is capable, or in practical terms, ready to decide what the regulations are going to be? Will there be a vote, or will there be at the UN, or how will that be come about?
1: Sorry, just let me clarify, regulations, um, what, what regulations, whose regulations? I'm saying in terms of consensus, will there be regulations from the, say, for instance, the,
3: the UN, or how will that come about in terms of clarifying the, the crises that repeat themselves in economic, global economic terms? Is this a question
0: about the source of authority for regulations? Yes. Yes. What is the source of authority for the kind of regulatory reform you envisage? Is it democratic? Is it another form of legitimacy or what? Is that a reasonable statement question? Okay. Six questions, Robert? Your final six?
1: Um, golly. <clears throat> well, let me just start then with this, this last one about the source of authority. Um, one reason why um, many... Uh, people in the non-G20 states get um, very angry about the role that the G20 has taken on is because the present G20 which they regard as an illegitimate self-selected body um, is uh, taking on the role of governing the IMF and the World Bank, uh, superseding or at least subordinating the legitimate and long-established governing bodies of those organizations, the uh, Development Committee, in the case of the World Bank, and the International Monetary and Financial Committee, in the case of the IMF. These are committees on which sit ministers, I mean political ministers, um, and they are the two top governing bodies of the organizations. But since 2009, the G20 have issued instructions as to what the World Bank and the IMF uh, governing bodies are to do. And as I said, states who are not in the G20 get very angry at this, what they regard as usurpation um, of the legitimate authority. And that's an example of why I think that the G20, as it's currently constituted, is not, is not a long-term viable solution, in quotation marks. Um, but uh, the, something like the Global um, Economic Council that, that I mentioned, which could be established using legitimate criteria, criteria of legitimacy, such as, for example, explicit um, membership, criteria, such as weight of population, weight of GDP, or whatever you like, but explicit criteria, um, and which had some sort of representational principle and some rotational principle in it, such as through regional organizations, Um, that body might uh, acquire the legitimacy uh, to uh, take a kind of overall... Uh, directing role even over the IMF and the World Bank but as I said that that is not the case at the moment even though the G20 is trying to make it the case as for the UN the UN has been remarkably sidelined in in all this in all the the handling of the crisis Um, even the Secretary General's office of the UN Uh, was not interested in a proposal for a major UN task force to um, put forward proposals for handling the crisis. There was a UN report, but that was not just not sponsored by the Secretary-General's office, it was opposed by the Secretary-General's office. It was sponsored by the President of the General Assembly's office, and this is the report that we know of as the Stiglitz. Commission report. Joe Stiglitz was uh, put in charge of it. But um, uh, ever since it was published, the bodies like the G20 and everybody who's respectable, so to speak, in the West has gone out of their way to kind of marginalize it, to poo-poo it. And this just illustrates the way that the UN has been sidelined in all this. In a way, the G20 has kind of taken over, eclipsed uh, the whole of the UN. And I personally think that that's a worrying development. Um, on Ian Goff's point, what, uh, the present system is dying, that is to say we are moving away from um, a dollar-dominated system towards more of a multi-currency system. Um, but the question is um, what might happen that might induce a kind of Bretton Woods moment where uh, a big institutional innovation is made rather than just kind of drifting with tinkering at the margins, uh, frankly, I don't know. I don't know. Um, But those are certainly two scenarios. If you consider the extreme conditions that gave rise to this unprecedented degree of consensus at Bretton Woods, the First World War, the Great Depression, fascism, communism, Second World War, that's what led up to this unprecedented degree of consensus at Bretton Woods that there had to be a major institutional reform. And so um, if today you want major reform, then beware what you wish for because it may be that only a, a triple leg... Uh, Sorry, the third leg of a triple crisis, the one in 2000, the one that we're still living through, and then another one. It may be three crises are necessary before any significant um, institutional reform will come about. That's a rather bleak outlook. In terms of Eva's um, question on um, the effects of these arrangements on uh, growth rates, for example, the effects on convergence... Well, the great problem for many developing countries over the past several decades is that their growth rates have been highly volatile, on average low, but highly volatile, so that there is relatively little correlation between growth rates for any one country in one decade and growth rates of the same country in the following decade. That's what I mean by highly volatile. And um, certainly the logic of the Uh, International Clearing Agency would suggest that this would be a way of stabilizing um, growth rates, in particular by reducing actually the two things together, the two lines of solution together, would reduce the volume of essentially speculative capital flows, um, flows of the kind that are now uh, really proving a a big headache for many emerging market economies, notably Brazil, because they are just pushing uh, prices, pushing exchange rates in completely the wrong direction. Uh, these two categories, two families of institutional innovations I've talked about would greatly reduce the role of private capital flows in, um, in um, setting exchange rates and in influencing national capital markets. So I think that uh, in the logic of it, it would it would do a lot to help um, convergence, to reduce um, volatility. Um, and uh, actually, much the same point applies to Leonardo Bellamacri's question. Leonardo, by the way, directs a big Ford Foundation program on financial reform. Directs it from New York. He's Brazilian. Um, And he's functioning like a kind of Schumpeterian entrepreneur in pushing academics all around the world to work on these kind of issues. Um, You you asked, Leonardo, how would the International Clearing Agency work for financial um, services and derivatives and so on? The short answer is I don't know, except that, as I said, this whole mechanism would greatly reduce the volume of short-term capital flows relative to GDP um, and uh, because all the um, foreign currency coming into a country would go through the central bank. It would not go through private capital markets. So as somebody said, there would be huge resistance to this um, proposal. It would greatly curtail private capital markets. But as Martin Wolf is the first to argue, the world needs... Um, to move towards much smaller and more stable banking systems. So that would be a good thing. Um, And I think I really don't have anything much to say about the other two questions, I'm afraid.
0: Well, I'm not sure that's good enough, Robert, but I suppose it is coming to 8 o'clock. And it remains for me not just a thank you for this evening's lecture, but I would like to say that you know, I've learned more from Robert Wade's work over the years at the LSE than from anyone else at the LSE. So I'd like to thank you, Robert, not just for this evening's lecture, but for your work in, in general.
3: Thank you.